You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. This is some of my best friends are Kabbalists. I'm Aprom Kipolevich, and I'm here with Rav Nosenota Glick and Orglog. We are uh, exploring different subjects and ideas that uh, are connected and are maybe the basis of what it means to live the life of a Mokubo, the life of a, of a, of a mystic, and not just a, a mystic in terms of scholarship, but actually a mystic who puts these ideas into his life and is on a, a growth arc that is unending. And I think we've spoken about this in the weeks previously. And last week specifically, we spoke about the demystifying in a way, or maybe understanding in a more mystical and, and, and pure way, the kavan of going to the mikvah. Let's talk about another action that sort of embraces all of us, which is sustenance, eating, drinking. And many of us who don't know anything about uh, the life of Mukubolim are probably quite impressed by the fact that in the Chesidisha world, the idea of the Rebbe's Tish uh, is more than just a social outlet for the Chesidim. Many of them see the Hanhogas of, of a Rebbe eating, of a Tzaddik eating, as itself instructive and it, it, it's, 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 it's important so many uh, people know about the idea of Shirayim and that's just a little bit of a hint of what it means when a tzaddik takes food into their mouth and what is happening and, 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 and how it can affect not only himself but everyone all around him so Rav Nelson why don't you start explaining a little bit about how this activity, which in many ways, if a person looks at it from a biological standpoint, seems very animalistic, is really imbued with so much depth. And I know that this is a subject, right before we started recording, you said that that you could probably spend hours writing and speaking about, but why why don't we at least start scratching the surface and to be able to understand it. Yeah. I, I don't spend hours writing anything, you know. Um, I tr- if I had to, if I had to write this stuff, it would be like, I don't know, three weeks. <laughs> and and I, you know, we're gonna we're gonna scratch the surface here at, at at best. There's a lot to there's a lot to say by even by way of introduction. I'll I'll just begin if you don't mind with like a personal anecdote. Um, the first time I ever went to a tish was when I was a little kid, probably about six or seven years old, and uh, my father took me to Rebioyalish. So, you know, I grew up in Miami, and among the other things that one can say about growing up in Miami, which you specified in the, I think, the uh, initial interview of this series, you know, um, but Rebbe's used to come to Miami. So, like, o- over the years, I had the opportunity to spend a considerable amount of time with this Galena Rebbe, not not the not the one that just was Nifter, but the, his father, 
Sure. Um, as, as who, the, who was? Yeah, and you were there too. Yes, yeah. yes. The Rebbe gave. I remember, yeah. the Rebbe gave me the bracha that I think uh, has allowed me to survive a, a number of close um, encounters, I guess, or close calls with death. And I, in terms of uh, hospitalization, I, I, it's clear to me that the Rebbe's bracha has has protected me. But yes, of course, the Skalener Rebbe, sure, mm. yeah. I remember that you. I remembered. You know, I I remember that you had a hakira because we were there for we were there for Havdola, and you you was you weren't sure that he could actually see. Yes, that's right. So you didn't know whether he should really should be making a bracha on the on the on the Havdola candle, you know, And then you said, but you know what, Mistama the Skalen is being blind is worth twenty times me with both eyes in my head. So I thought that was. I, yeah, I was, I, I, I was yes, very yes. turned on by that. Right, right after yeah. the Havdola, uh, as we were. So the, the first time, the first time I. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I, I, I can tell the Skinner Rebbe story at a different time, but go ahead. I know you had, you were able to see the avoid of a real tzaddik like the Skinner Rebbe, yes, and and the remnants yeah. too. Remember. Yeah, although the Ribnitzer had much less of an impact on me, you know, it was um, I don't know. The Ribnitzer was was kind of I felt I didn't I didn't get the same energies off of him, but the Skalena was was a very very loving person, you know, yes. and, and and he had a lot of emotional depth, and and I don't think that you could sit through a tish of his without you know, without being emotional, unless he like really had like a heart of stone or some sort of really kalta personality. I, I think um, also not not only was he great. But his his um, his, ca- his supporting cast, the the skeleton crew that he brought down to that, you know, to that little, I wouldn't even call it a hotel, but whatever it was, the sufficiency apartments that he had over there in South Beach, the the uh, assistants that he had were were also great, wonderful people. I remember specifically uh, there was this kugel that was a nice kugel that came out of the oven. And uh, I remember we were sitting, of course, the call came out for you and me and whoever was semi-chsidish to come and join the tish, so there should be an oilum there. I remember how we walked down there and when the when the hot kugel came out and one of his shamosim or, was there and you know the Rebbe pushed the, the piece to him, I remember him taking this piece of potato kugel and after he had Tasted the shirai, and he said, Ah, It was like, you know, he, he felt that he was mamish <laughs> being toyim, one of the serofim, uh, in that, in, in, in the steam that was coming out of that yeah. kugel. Um, well, the, the, uh, previous school and Rebbe also, the, you know, uh, that school and Rebbe's son was also there. He was quite a younger sure. fellow at the Redhead. time. And he was, I remember, I remember. Seaboard, yeah. Sure, he was a, you could see his red hair then at that time. He was oh, wonderful. Do you remember the Sklena Rebbe also, Rav Nelson, just to speak about the Tzaddik? Uh, you know, he, he would speak about his, um, his moistus, right? And, you know, what happened to him, you know, he, he was somewhat frail and barely, you know, able to walk a straight line. And then when he would stand in front of the podium and he would speak about his moistus, he became 50 years younger. He, be, he became a lion. Do you remember when he, would, when he would start to speak passionately and emotionally about 
what he was trying to collect for the you know you could see the transformation and how a person who was old and frail and blind you know turned into a uh, you know a spiritual giant right in front of you Again, I, I saw that by only one other person, and that was by the Rav, by Rav Salvechik. Uh, when, I was, when I went to his Chuvashir, uh, uh, and one of the last, I guess one of the last ones that were public, uh, this was probably in uh, 1970, um, um, was it maybe 1980? Or eighty-one. Well, sometime back in the good old days. You know. Yes. So I, I remember that the the when the shear started. So um, when the shear started, still the, there? The, yes, I'm still here. When the shear started, the rov was shaking with Parkinson's, which is what he had. He had Parkinson's never, and uh, he, he was sort of uncontrollably shaking his knees, and then when he started to speak, he became like the Rock of Gibraltar. And he spoke for almost two hours, um, and you could hear a pin drop. And he was, you know, magnificent. I still remember the shtickle that he said. And this is what you see by, you know, by, by, by great spiritual people, what they're able to channel and, and, and the power they can have. But, but let, you know, let's talk about food, especially now. But go ahead. Yeah, let me go. So let me go back to my, my anecdote, which gives you something about the, the popular perception of tishas by chassidim okay so my father took me to see rabbi Eilish and that, you know and there was the usual uh shirayim kegel gefilte fish thing going on you know and all the p- pressing and stopping and um and uh, my father tells me do you know why the chassidim are so excited to get little pieces of the food he says this is the explanation the rabbi is only interested in ruchnius things okay so he looks at the he looks at the at the food and he Baruch Kodshay, he pulls out the ruchniastic elements and he leaves all the gashmias. So all the Hasidim want to grabbing the gashmias because they want all the parnosa and the gashmias and the and the and the health and the happiness and the bracha, you know. So that's why they're going that's why they're going so crazy because they can get their gashmias without any ruchnias. Wow. Now, strange, strange as this might seem, it seems you know, it seems almost to me like anti-Hasidic, um, anti-Hasidic propaganda. But, but um, I, I think my father actually believed it when he told it to me. And, and, and you know, is there, is there? He thought he, he, he thought this made sense, you know. And, and does it make now, sense? To, does it make sense to you now? The idea that when you're taking basically an item that is is given by the grace of God, the power of nutrition, that there's a way that a, 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 a makubal can actually somehow, a tzaddik, a makubal, let's put those two terms together in a way, is able to, when he's eating, to actually zero in on something, a spiritual energies that are in that food and be able to somehow separate it from some of the nutritional elements of it. Um, no, I, I think it. I think it works like this. I mean, I'll, I'll give this is the this is the more um, classical way of doing it. And and my father, although he wasn't wasn't right, but he certainly wasn't completely wrong either. Okay. Look, uh, the the idea is like this. Okay, there's there's something called um, the death of the kings of the land of Edom. 
otherwise known as shvira sakalim, the, the breaking the breaking of the vessels. And and this is a, this is a very interesting topic in of itself. Like, what is the what does it mean the breaking of the vessels? When, if you can use that kind of you know, uh, if you can use that kind of temporal analogy uh, in this with this kind of event, but when did it happen? How does it relate to the whole picture of uh, of um, the worlds and and the and the and the sefirot, you know? But in any event, sparks of holiness and and broken vessels of of uh, of Hashem's attributes um, have fallen down, and they permeate the reality in which we exist. And to some extent, the, the physicality of the world is a result of these, the descent of these, of these broken vessels. On the one hand, they're very holy in of themselves, if you, were to, if you were to access their true nature. But on the other hand, they're also very estranged because they're also very fallen. And the fallenness of that is something that gives the natural world, or gives the, or gives the physical world its, its, shall we say, coarseness and physicality. Okay. So part of the process of of rectifying, you know, doing a tikkun for the world and and returning the world to Hakadosh Baruch Hu, you know, along the lines of the idea that uh, Hakadosh Baruch Hu made ayin into yesh. Maybe he, you know, he made his own. Um, his own indefinable essence into being by projecting himself out and creating the world, and it's our job to take the you know to take the yesh and bring it back to ayin, all right. Which is and that's the, basically I think the I think the uh, Magid Mimezrich was the was the one who came up with that um, you know with that uh, um, formula. Anyway, so. When you you know when you partake of the world when you pay you know when you eat okay you're supposed to be raising sparks up you're supposed to be somehow contacting these broken vessels lifting them up and making them part of yourself and this this goes through the arbius sodot you know you have you have uh, everything that we eat basically one way or another grows from the grows from the ground okay and it, it goes through it goes through a plant phase and then it goes through, let's say, an animal phase. If you're eating, if you're eating an animal, not a plant, okay. And then it goes, you know, it becomes it becomes human. And um, generally, the the scheme here is that is that domain is like olam ha'asiya. That's the world of asiya, which corresponds to malchut. And then you have the world of yitzira, which is which is plant life, so to speak. And the plants correspond to that. You know, um, and then you have life, living living beings correspond to Olam Habriya, which is the world of ideas, actually. So I guess I guess animals have ideas. Maybe an animal is a is a manifestation of an idea. And then you have and then you have uh, humans who are capable of speech, and because we're capable of speech, we can we can connect to Olam Hatzilut, because Olam Hatzilut, as I noted previously, is a world that does not exist in the sense that we usually think. It doesn't exist as objects. It doesn't exist as things. It exists as Hashem's self-expression. So, so it's a world of attributes, of names, of speech, of, okay? It's a world, it's a world that isn't, have, isn't inhabited by being. It's inhabited by language and self-expression. 
Okay, which incidentally is one of the reasons why when you you know when you when you pray when you do tefillat shmona yisrael you're 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 in atzilut because you, and you, and atzilut is supposedly if you do the kavanah correctly you know atzilut is speaking through you and hakadosh baruch hu is present in the words that you speak. Okay, so that's a pretty it's a pretty important piece of piece of Torah. Also, it's also true about prophecy. You know that the navi speaks and hakadosh baruch hu is in his voice. Because it's speech, right? So with with all that with all that introduction, since the human being is the medaber, right? So he he is on the level of olam matzilut, and therefore everything that happens, especially insofar as it involves some kind of human effort, like you know plowing the field and planting the grain, and harvesting and and maybe you know feeding and caring for the animals, and then doing shechita to the animals, and then and then taking the grain and pounding it out and grinding it down and baking it in an oven. All of these, all of these rectifications that human beings naturally do in order to make things edible, are actually processes that involve the elevation of the broken vessels and the sparks. And by the way, melacha, you know, work, which is what we do during the during the week, is Equivalent is is the equivalent of Gehenom of hell, okay? Because there's fire. I mean, we're, you know, fire is the basis of all work, and that's why, let's say on on Shabbat, oops, can you hear that? Yes. Okay, we just I just declined that call. Um, so on Shabbat, you know, when when there's no work, that's when the Shamot are no longer in Gehenom because Nishamot are, 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 you know, human consciousness that has followed after the ta'ava, has follow, followed after the lust and the desire, and has gone down to the level of the sparks that they were supposed to lift up instead of doing it the other way. So basically, get, you know, hell exists in the work, but the work is absolutely necessary for clarifying the sparks and bringing it up to the level where you can, where a human being can eat it. Right? So, when you, you know, so when you're a Rebbe and when you're, in a, shall we say, a, a actualized Mekubal, uh, okay, so you will eat, first of all, not so much to enjoy yourself, even though that can happen, right? It's not that, it, it, you know, I mean, really, actually, the truth is that depends. There are Mekubalim that tell you that you have to eat in an absolutely selfless way, no pleasure, no enjoyment. Those are the really, uh, you know, the more aesthetically oriented ones. Let's say somebody like the Noam Elimelech. But you know the the famous uh, the, the famous thing from the Mezritcher Magi, which you also mentioned and also brought down in in uh, in, um, in uh, Kedusha Slavi, you know, that the idea is not not to enjoy the food. You enjoy the food, but you have to uplift the very act of enjoyment. You have to say that this is you know this enjoyment that I'm experiencing now is the the pleasure of Hakadosh Baruch Hu that he would get if this if this uh, if this experience was uplifted to him, and therefore the actual pre- the actual pleasure that you're experiencing becomes becomes transformed. You make it you know you make it into something else. So so you, it it isn't a selfish pleasure. You're experiencing this pleasure as a way of Hakadosh Baruch Hu receiving the pleasure of having himself returned Kaviyachol to himself. Right. So. All of this, you know, the, so the whole eating thing really starts from really starts from the bottom up, and one of the critical phrases that the Zohar says about this is that kola bechokhmata idbariru. Everything has been clarified 
or everything has been refined through through wisdom or through thought. Maybe I think that no, maybe it's b'machshava itbariru. Everything has been clarified through thought. And I mean, I was once having a conversation with my Rebbe, you know, Rebbe Shlomo Vaknin, and he asked me, or I was, you know, as I, I I asked him, what does that mean? And he asked me, what do I think it means? And I told him, and he said, no, you're not even close. <laughs> and he never. <laughs> And he never told me. Uh, he just, you know, he just sent me off to, to you know, look for some Meyer McClaimers and and stuff. But um, anyway, I'll call upon him. You see that because, you know, the the wisdom that goes into the whole process of finding food, of growing it, of taking it, of extracting it. Okay, that is the wisdom. That is the that is the that is mavarer, and the machshava is in your head. Okay. So there's so there's something in the in the in the act of eating which which uh, you attempt so, to so have that experience and, and and make it into something holy. So it sounds like so, the more you know the midrashim that speak about the significance of human activity. For example, the midrashim speak about why you know uh, I think it's Rabbi Kiva speaking to Tonus Rufus, you know, in a sort of a way about what is the great thing that man can do, that man can make bread, right? Then they talk about the idea about lechem. And of course, yeah. the, the greatest bracha that we have, really the king of the bracha is, is hamitzi lechem and arts, even though it's really human activity, as you say, to the extreme, that's able to produce these beautiful, wonderful chalas. But that human activity, right, which is really the chokhma of, of mankind, animals, of course, uh, do not do that. Um, that chachma that we use seemingly to just produce grain and to create the flour uh, and to make the bread is now uh, by, I would assume, not just by the eating, but the bracha, first of all, right? The bracha, which really connects what man has done and saying it's God, hamotzi, right? Hamotzi lechem arts. And again, we Let's talk about the future a little bit later when we talk about Osid Haaretz Lahotzi Gluskaos. Let's say now in the present time, before that tikkun occurs, we make we say the Brocha Hamotzi on something that has been the product of, you know, of, of, of human resourcefulness and human understanding and, 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 and human abilities. And then, right? And then when we mm-hmm. when we when we, we take that food into our system. We, with the bracha, with the understanding of the achila, in a way we fuse with God in terms of um, recognizing that our wisdom was really the wisdom of our souls that were a part of God to be able to understand that. And um, whereas a person who is just a, a great baker, but it just takes the food into his body just to sustain himself, to give himself a sense of nutrition so he, he won't pass out, that person is, as you say, stuck in the, um, he's stuck in the Oilam Yeah, he's, 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 he's at least going to have to come back to Gilgal, you know, because, because he's going, you know, he's following after the Kalim and the, the Sparks, but, uh, but they're not coming to him. He's, he's going down after them, so that means he's going to have to come back. Get it right the next the next time he becomes embodied, okay. But the the um, I mean the the thing that you're pointing out is also part of the part of the complexity of this of this whole situation, um, 
and that is, I mean, if if you if we're going to throw the, you know, let me let me say something else here for let me just not go down that road. Um, the the way in order to have these kinds of experiences, right, is through what goes by us for meditation. And and meditation, I which I, I know a considerable amount about it, you know, and it's in its eastern eastern forms. You know, some of it is simply exactly the same process that I'm going to that I'm going to outline. You learn the sugya of what something means, and you ponder it and you think about it until you realize that it's true, or at least you realize that it's true within the framework of our interpretation of the world, which Hakadosh Baruch Hu has given us. You can look at it that way if you want to be more philosophical. And when you realize that it's real or when you realize that it's true, when you realize that it's something, then you can experience it, you know, until you, until you actually have the realization in your heart that, Hey, this is, this is really the way that it is. Okay. And, and of course, you know, it's not something, it's not something that you can prove. Okay. But it's something that, you know, on some level it makes sense and it explains your life and it gives you a sense of direction and and you can you know you can feel that awakening when it happens. You really wow, this is this is for real, right? And at that point, you're able to eat more consciously. You're able to work more consciously, and you experience the things that the Torah tells you that you ex- that you should experience. Okay, so part of it is has to do, of course, with the with the um, intelligent use of imagination. Okay, because if you know, imagination is simply the capacity that you have to to picture things in your own mind. That's you know, imagination gets a bad rap because you say, oh, it's all your, you know, it's all in your imagination. There's nothing, you know, you, you believe in unicorns. Oh, well, you're just imagining that. Oh, you believe in a flat Earth. Well, you know, you're you're imagining that. It's not true. But imagination, in its best form, is something that actually mediates the reality for you when you don't have any way based upon your current level of experience of, of, of assimilating it. And, and it also really allows so you, you, it also allows you to communicate. In other words, if we would all be, um, you know, uh, Spocks from Star Trek, we would have a hard time as Vulcans to really to connect and, and relate. Uh, the imaginative faculty is what allows you to create a bridge to another person. Now, he might not have the same exact picture in his mind, but you're, you're, when you imagine and you use that kawachadimion to lace your phraseology and an image that you reach out to someone, the person can be part of it in some way. Um, whereas if it's just this cold, uh, logical statements, of, you know, robotic statements speaking to each other, you really don't have a fusion of people at all. Anyway, uh, I just, uh, so. I'm just, I'm just adding. No, that's that's bit. that's true. I would, I just, I, I think you, you know, I think you said some. Yeah, I, I think you said something very valuable, uh, which I'm I going do. to, which I'm going to uh, elaborate upon a tiny bit, and um, just say that the most important thing that you have to have in order to understand anything is a primal metaphor. You could even call it a mythology. And because all these mythologies that, that 
even even scientific people have mythologies, you know, because the the belief in science that I'm actually discovering something about the universe, that I that this knowledge is valuable and useful, and it's going to help humanity and all that stuff. There's the, you know the mythology is kind of vague, but it but it's but it's definitely there, and all mythology is really a metaphor for comprehending reality, which we otherwise couldn't have any access to. So, and these, you know, every mitzvah, if you want to think of it that way, is is going to be a metaphor, in some in some sense. You know, the even even the even the whole story about birurim and and the, the whole thing that I just went through about 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 refining this, you know, broken vessels and lost sparks through through labor. Labor is something that we would do anyway because we need to eat. Okay, unless you want to be hunter gatherers and wander around in the forest. Um, you know, we need we need to do this in order to survive. But once we're already doing it, it becomes a metaphor for something that's much deeper. And when you and when when that deeper element begins to flow through, you begin to experience it. Then you know you say, "Aha! This is this is true. This is real. This is actually this is actually happening." So part of you know, and and without imagination, you don't have any metaphors. You know, metaphors are created by imagination, and then something else creeps in and and affirms that this is that this is so. And and and, so, and without that metaphor, you really end up um, sort of adrift in, a, in in an abstract world. The metaphor is really what, uh, again, it's it's as it's as obvious as the philosophical explanation of prophecy, right? The whole idea in, in, the, Ara- right. in the Arabic way of explaining, which the Rambam and others adopted, was that most prophets, other than Moshe Rabbeinu, uh, had to get their nevuah through some sort of koachadimia, and it was that that allowed the the messages of God to penetrate. So, without the imaginative faculty, right. not only don't you have people communicating and sharing the experience, like I mentioned before, but according to I think even you know most people who who talk about prophecy, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be possible without the koachadimia. So uh, this is clearly right. something. You know, and and um, so along along those lines, by the way, I think I think that today the feeling of being adrift in a Judaism that doesn't mean anything is a very it's a, it's a very big problem. I think a lot of people suffer from that. You know, and even people who are, would be otherwise you know great Talmudei Chachamim and they're very dedicated and they're very this, but but they're lacking the kind of of uh, I don't know master metaphor or any one of them anyway that that can that can really give them a a a view of their universe and what they're doing in it and how that, and, and how that's a real living experience. So, you know, that's one of the reasons why you want to, you want to learn Pinimiyuta Torah. You want to learn these things and people don't, and people do not learn how to meditate. People don't learn, people don't learn how to learn this way. Okay. I, I have to tell you just, you know, we, we talked about, we started today talking about our, our, our youth and things that we experience together. And I remember, um, uh, like it was yesterday, how you introduced me to Kaplan's other side. I remember, you know, because, you know, Ari Kaplan, of course, had been, um, it was already at the time we were friends in the 70s, already starting his incredible career of, you know, changing the Torah landscape in terms of his translations and his explanations and his books for NCSY and on Rav Nachman and, uh, you know, collecting uh, sort of like the the best of Hasidic thought in his mind, 
And then you said, look at this, what I have from the wiser press. And these were books that Kaplan had written on meditation uh, that were, that were starkly different. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. And, and he, I mean, he didn't publish them through Feldheim. I'll tell you that, you know, <laughs> that's right. This was the Samuel. I remember you showed it to me, the Samuel wiser press. And here was again, uh, and here was sort of like the, the essence. And, 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 and I guess really the, the point is, is that you, we talked about our first uh, episode, the discipline that's necessary to imbibe within yourself that metaphor and you have to sort of like repress your desire to restructure it and say, okay, this is the Eitz Chaim. This is the metaphor. This is, you talked about the Malochim, the Malchei Edom. All of those um, phrases and, and, and ideas, the way they're expounded, part of what you need to do is have the patience to be able to um, allow it to be embedded into your mind by learning and thinking and reviewing it. Otherwise, if you don't have that major uh, metaphor, that major dimion, you're really not going to advance in in your avoda as, a, as in, in in the in the world of mysticism. Correct. Well, well, that would that would be true, and I don't think you're going to advance in your in your in your avoda anyway. Look, you know, how many people that I know that they they keep Shabbos because the Torah says they have to keep Shabbos. Other than that, they really don't understand. Anything more than that, I you know I, I I work during the week. I rest on Shabbos. Why? Because God said so. Okay, Uh-oh. and you know, and and if you once you once you have this one fairly simple concept of of birurim of of uh, of clarification, and what needs to be lifted up and how and why and how that relates to Gehenna, you know how that how that relates to hell and how that relates to 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 transformation. Okay, and just like something has gone through twenty different phases of transformation in order to become the bread that I eat, what I do with my life has to go through twenty stages of transformation in order to in order to connect um, ultimately to the to the attributes and names of Hakadosh of, of Hakadosh Baruch Hu, You know, so I don't know how anybody can be from without that. That's the kind of, that you know. That's the kind of thing. It, it just it really just changes it changes everything, and it you know makes me want to get up in the morning. If I if I didn't have that, I don't know, you know, where I would be today. Well, and it doesn't surprise me too much. Yeah, well, let, to, let's admit know. that there is, you know, there are Hersheyans, there are other you know people out there who have, uh, and, and Hersh of course was very careful, you know, in um, in his editing when he first wrote the Chorev, which was sort of his youthful uh, exposition of all the mitzvahs and dividing them into different categories and trying to find meaning within all of them and using the details. I mean, Hirsch uh, was, was a genius in that way of trying to collect the details of the law and being able to form from them a certain uh, intellectual, emotional understanding of, of Judaism and, and Hirsch was careful in his Chorev to edit out influences from the Zohar you know that was part of Rav Kook's Atzal right. uh, when Rav Kook criticized uh, Hirsch and for his anti um, I wouldn't call it Zionistic but his, his lack of his anti 
towards the movement of people coming to Eretz Yisrael and how Hirsch was warning about how he thought it was might end in tragedy and it wasn't necessarily something he was going to use uh, the great influential power that he had to push. Rav Kook Satsal spoke about the fact that Hirsch, despite his greatness, never embraced uh, the world of, of Sod. And because of that, he missed the centrality of Eretz Yisrael. And my point really being is, there are people out there, Nelson, who are, um, who are, I don't know how many, who are either using a Hershian attitude, uh, a Maimonidean attitude. Uh, you can catch that on my uh, most recent podcast when I talk about the Rambam's sense of what eating should be. And, and it doesn't give you necessarily the, the excitement and the sense of cosmology and demiurgic power that we talked about, about the Skalana Rebbe eating a kugel. But there are people out there, I think, you have to admit, that have developed a, a intense, not mystical, but an intense uh, lifestyle where it isn't just, okay, how, do I have a Kazayas or not? They are really thinking, but not necessarily according to Chochmas uh, Asoid. And I think that, uh, you know. That- well, that's, that's that's completely legitimate, by the way, and and uh, you know we have some controversy over here in in Eretz Yisrael about like does somebody believe in the Zohar uh, still a Jew? You know, is they like 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 can you count him for a minion since he's a since he's a Kefir be Ikar? You know, he doesn't believe in the Zohar. You know, I mean, so people, you know, I mean, right right now, even. Even for people who don't learn Kabbalah, Kabbalah is the official theology of Orthodox Judaism, whether anybody knows it or not. Um, and and the alternative to Kabbalah, of course, is Maimonidean rationalism, which, by the way, I take I personally take very very seriously. I mean, there there are on occasion days that I understand the Rambam so well that I say, "Wow, you know, maybe I'm on a, you know, maybe <laughs> maybe you're I jumping, should flip sides." Jumping you know? ship. Yeah. You know? yeah, maybe you know, but but um, I mean, I have a I have a consistent pattern of always coming back to the same thing. So I guess, like I said once, you know, it's, it's in my schusavus, it's in my DNA, and it's not it's not going anywhere. I'm not I'm not going to become a you know a Maimonidean rationalist. But for some people, that that's really that's really the master metaphor that uh, that that works for them. Let, let, let now, me just let me just beat another dead horse. And, and by and there is a, and there is definitely a cosmology to it. You can't you can't you can't say not. And by the way, if you try taking the Rambam and updating him with with current science. Which is difficult because he worked with a different con- with a whole different science, you know. But if you can if you if you can if you can do that, there's some fascinating things to be, uh, you know, to be realized there. And I I do believe very strongly that that you know, for some people, you know, we need we need the Rambam again. And I'm you know quite honest about that. Well, right, like, that's right, what I really feel. Well, just just on two points on that. The first thing I just want to just reemphasize, although like I said, I'm beating a a dead horse or squashing a uh, dead prune um, is that unlike reaching to the converted. Yeah. Well, unlike, well, well, I just want to just reiterate, unlike what we would sometimes think about the Christian mystics or, or, or perhaps native Americans or shamans, the idea of, you know, they perhaps would say the purer something is a fruit, an apple, something that's, a, a grass, vegetarianism. We actually, in, in the Kabbalistic way of looking at things, there's more tikkun and more avoda 
like I said, the more humans have put into it, which is, you know, interesting. Um, you know, most people would say, I am just going to have, you know, you know, I'm going to not, I'm not going to push nature out of the way. I'm just going to have a very, remember Ewell Gibbons from when we were growing up, right? <laughs> <laughs> he would, well, what, was, what was, what cereal was he pushing there? Grape oh. nuts. I think grape wow. nuts. Grape nuts. I'm going to eat the grape nuts. They taste like gravel, little rocks. You chew on them. That's right. He, and they're he, all natural. <laughs> well, you know. He would eat the park bench. You know what I'm saying? He would he would start munching on <laughs> munching on a piece of wood. But that really is is counter to uh, you know it's counter to to what we know is Hasidic or mystical thought. That's just I just want to emphasize that. And that's, absolutely right. Which is yes, again absolutely. And, mo- and most people would say, well, you know. Um, the second thing I, I'm going to say on, on this, and, and this is one of my favorite shtiklach from Rav Kooks. That's all. Zeicher Tzadik um, uh, he, Rav Kook was an incredible reader, uh, an incredible critic, a writer, uh, really so multifaceted. Zev Yaivitz, um, who was also a very poetic, beautiful writer, most people do not read his things anymore. Um, our good friend Menachem Yuni introduced me to him. Uh, he wrote the Toldas Yisrael, which was um, mm-hmm. a 14-volume uh, history that attempted to take the sort of like all over the place, didactic, um, argumentative um, uh, material of Rabbi Yitzhak Isaac Alevi Rabinovich, the Deris Harishonim, and turn it into a readable uh, uh, ideas from the mo- from the time of Brias Olam till you know the beginning of the nineteenth or the mid nineteenth century. So that's told us his from Sevyevitz. In the middle of that history, he he has some scathing comments about the Rambam and that the Rambam's core philosophy was really fused from his reading of Averroes and reading of uh, the Arabic uh, philosophers that he had sometimes made a Frankenstein monster out of it, connecting it to the Maimari Chazal that somehow fit into his system. And that in general, it was a, uh, a Deya Zorah. It was, and then this is, of course, part of Hirsch's criticism as well, that that what the Rambam created was was not inherently out of Jewish sources. He picked and chose. Okay. Anyway, Rav Cook felt he needed to respond to this. Um, I wouldn't call it a screed, but this criticism of that of the Rambam's thought. And what Rav Cook says is that I agree with you that the Rambam took these from. Uh, Arabic ideology, the idea of the Seichel Apoel, the idea of the active intellect, the idea of what Olam Haba means, yes. But once someone of his spiritual stature took this unique and different mindset and philosophy of, of Torah and used it for his eating, drinking, and Shemone Esrei, he has now elevated it. He has been mala this derech through the engine of his neshama. And now, because the Rambam lived this way, because the Rambam himself was a tzaddik atzim, now others can follow in that path. It took someone like the Rambam, who, because he was not exposed to the real McCoy stuff, to sort of create out of bits and pieces and his, his urge to cleave to God, this theology, now 
Rav Kook Zatzal said, others can now use, study more Nebuchim, and study the Rambam's ideas, and also be elevated. And I thought this was such a great piece of what made Rav Kook Rav Kook. Um, well, and... I must, I, I, have to, I have to differ with, uh, you know, I mean, offer anitachas kape, kapes raglov, you know, but, but still, whatever small brain I have, uh, I have, so... What I think actually about, about the Rambam is that, that he's 100% authentic. That the range of opinion that existed within Baalei Agadet of Chazal, the range of opinions that existed within Chazal was very, very diverse. And, and uh, that there were rationalistic uh, voices in Chazal, just like there were mystical voices in Chazal. And you can, all you have to do is really compare somebody like Rabbi Yishmael to Rabbi Akiva on, on, on on numerous, um, you know, on numerous points. So it's I, I think you know I think in the end that that you know the Rambam is absolutely legitimate when he you know the the rise that he brings for his from Chazal to his to his opinions are 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 is Galvin, you know. Um, I don't want I, I, that. that you, I mean, be. you know, you obviously, but you have you know you have Mamorim Luchan, you know, you have you have statements that go this way, you have statements that go that way, and that's all. That's the way that it is in Torah, and and. You know, in contrast to halacha, where there's a necessity to actually choose one thing that's going to become the halacha, um, or else you're going to have total chaos within within the realm of of, uh, of emunas v'deis. You know, the it was it was left intentionally wide open because I guess you don't know which you know which master metaphor Hakadosh Baruch Hu wants a certain generation to to utilize. I'm surprised. Okay. And, I, and, I'm surprised by your liberalism on this because. Um, I'm extremely yeah I'm I'm extremely liberal but I yeah. I love I love the Rambam and I I, I you know I see the, I see the truth of his uh, I see the truth of uh, let me just push back just incidentally for so did so did so did Hakodesh Rabbi Avram Abu Lafia trying to be Mataki and all this you know scholarly references to Abu Lafia of the past yes. <laughs> you know. Um, um, Okay, so so he also, I mean, you know, his his essential metaphysical scaffolding was Maimonidean, but he had a cherry on top, actually more like a watermelon on top, because he actually had he actually had olamatzilut in in some form that was quite unique to him. Um, but you know, along along, if you if you were to count the major metaphors that have that existed in Am Yisrael, okay, so you have Kabbalah in a variety of forms. You have um, you have Let's say Avram Ibn Ezra, who is also he's obviously the the uh, the expression of a school of thought that existed for a while, and you have the Rambam, which I also think is the expression of a school of thought that existed prior to prior to his. And when the Rambam wrote the Mar Nevuchim, I don't think he was talking out of his own head. You know, you don't create a book like that if you're just if you're just one little person, no matter how great you are. Okay, the Rambam was at this was at the was at the spearhead of a tradition. Okay, which, you know, he gave, he gave it voice, but he's not, you know, but he's not the origin of it, and he's not the only the only speaker. All right. Yeah, so, I, I, I'm going to push back on that. I, I, you know, again, I think this is, um, uh, I think he is the architect, and I think he is the person who, um, if he does have his antecedents are Arabs, his antecedents are not uh, B'nai Torah. He writes that himself. 
in the Hakdama to uh, the third Chalik of Moran of Uchamid. Again, this is not supposed to be a class about uh, a, a podcast about the Rambam. All I'm yeah. telling, uh, basically, and, and I'm again, I'm going to push back here. What I know about uh, what I see in Kabbalistic thought, and um, is that they, and I, let's take the Maral, who um, in, is, is not a, 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 a Lurianic person at all, but the Maral, who represents his own brand of sort of the mystical world, writes that it, it's illogical to say that you're going to have in Chazal opinions that are so drastically against each other that you're going to have some Tanoim who represent a rational world that didn't know about the Eurois of Chochmas Hasoid at all, and therefore took the the texts that were with them and created some sort of uh, a program that was at odds. And then you had the Shimon Bar Yochainiks, uh, Rabbi Kivaniks, who were part of the Kabbalistic world, and they have this, you know, uh, very deep, different understanding. As the Maral says, we don't treat Chazal that way. We, 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 we want to feel that there are gradations of differences. Look, let me put it in podcast terms. If I would have, you know, Pat Buchanan on this show, or if I would have, um, uh, you know, the Dalai Lama, our conversation would not be anything like what you and I are having, because we come from, we would be so drastically different, we would be talking one away from each other. I think when you when you when you put uh, the Chazal and say, "Oh, this was a this was a, a intense rationalist," and then we have the Kabbalists where these Tanoim and Amaroyim, I think you're in danger of creating a tremendous drift. And what happens is you get confusion when you have the Maimore Chazal because then you're not sure. Well, where does this Maimor? Uh, relate to is this one of the rationalistic ones that really is aren't part of the, uh, the the kabbalistic school i think from what i know and again i bow to your uh, superiority in this field but from what i know i see uh, uh an, uh, the the Mekubolim trying to use their their scope like Rafzadok and others to explain every single Maimer Chazal within their system, just a little nafkamina, a little chiluk, sort of like a brisker difference. That's what I notice. Uh, what you're saying to me it, it, is, is to me a, is, is novel coming from you, a person oh. who you say that you are a makubo in your heart and soul. Oh, okay. I mean, first of all, I, I wouldn't be bowing down to, I wouldn't be bowing down to me if, you know, or, or would you be bowing down to me if you knew who I really was or, you know, I would, but anyway, so leave, leave, leave that, leave that aside. It's look, you know, it's, it's my, it's, it's, it's my assessment. It's my assessment based mostly on the fact that, that, um, um, look, I did spend like a good 10 years of my life trying to, trying to learn the Rambam and the Marin Nevochim. And and uh, there 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 came there came a time after after I pretty pretty much swum around in the Hasidic shatayrus um, that I said to myself you know okay I have to there's 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 Rambam everybody I mean everybody in the yeshiva world loves the Rambam right so let's so let's take a look at what he what he wrote and uh, I spent a, I spent a lot of time on on Hil Hasidic Hatayra. and by the way I'm going to say something which is going to sound arrogant but I think you know I'm humble enough to be to sound arrogant I'm okay with that. <laughs> is that I know that I can really learn because I was able to figure out the truth of what the Rambam meant 
in Hilchas Yisaidi Atira. And I figured out something very simple that he, the Rambam was talking science. He wasn't talking, it was, I mean, there's an extent, of course, but he was talking science. Yeah, he really thought that there's a crystalline sphere spinning around the world, spinning around the earth, that there's a planet embedded in it, and that crystalline sphere has, is alive and it has an intellect. And it's what and it's what and it's what the Torah was referring to when it described angels, all right. So I mean, this was in, this was almost impossible to figure out because you know we we when we were learning Hilchis Society of Torah and Yeshiva, we were we we had already been given the contemporary scientific worldview, which which there aren't any four Yisodot, and there aren't crystalline spheres in the in, in outer space and all of that stuff. So so our teachers were trying to feed us all kinds of metaphorical interpretations for this oh what you know what does it really mean the rambam couldn't possibly mean what he said what does it really mean and you know and and to be able to it took me years i'm not kidding but you know to be able to cut through all of this the rambam couldn't possibly be saying that no no the rambam was a medieval okay he was definitely he was saying exactly what he thought he was he was giving you exactly in a very very boiled down manner the science of his the science of his day the biggest problem with the rambam incidentally is is that once the science of his day died which it did in the Renaissance, then what do we do with what do we do with the rest of his uh, of his philosophical uh, approach? You know, how okay. much of it can be can be salvaged, how much of it can be adapted? You know, so that's a that's a serious piece of work. But anyway, being somebody who loves the Rambam very much and spent a lot of time learning him, you know, I'm not prepared to just say, up, oh, you know, Derek Agav, since he was so great and he was a chassad, a chassadik, he was able to basically be toivel the sheretz and make it into in, 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 into something Yiddishkeit. I don't know, you know, it doesn't. Um, it doesn't res- resonate you know, with you. Uh, no, but it again, doesn't resonate with I, me. Okay, but I would say Nelson, let's wind um, it and, up. And yeah, yeah, let's wind it up. On we this. wandered far from food. Yes. No more. Well, no well, more quiggle for us. Yeah. <laughs> no heisa malochim. But the malochim you're talking about, these dead planets that this, that that our our, our uh, satellites and rockets are going to and recognizing where their seichel is. I, I would say again, just to you know, that nobody ever crashed into the crystalline spheres. Oh, I just I got to tell you this. But I'm sorry for sorry for interrupting you. I was once I was once in a shear by my you know by my Rebbe Shlomo Vaknin, you know. And he said over B'Shem Rav Kaduri that the moon landing was a hoax. Had to be a hoax. Why? Because of the crystalline sphere. Because, you know, I mean, the, 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 the same Aristotelian science is brought down by the, by the Ari, because the Ari is somewhat on the borderline between the Renaissance and, and, uh, and, and the, old, the old science. You know, so the Ari bases himself a lot on, not a lot, like actually very, very little. And when he's dealing with the, with, with the Igulim, you know, he bases himself on the uncontemporary science of his day. And so, and so he had that. So based upon this, Rav Kaduri said in this year, it's impossible for a human being to land on the moon. He didn't say it like that. He said, it, it's a, okay. And, you know, Right, and I but, think uh, I, I think I think I think statements like that are dangerous for people <laughs> to hear. And I would just say, Nelson, that that you know, uh, think uh, even what you're saying, uh, and and I appreciate the amount of effort and study you put into it because to me, I'm a cookian, and I think the Rambam is is getting a lot of nachas that someone like you was working to trying to finally say now this is what he meant. However, 
once that science has debunked what's in there, then the, to actually invest effort into trying to understand it and to tell people this is your Yesodos. The Rambam felt this is the way you know God. That if you don't have this, yes. you really don't know God, and you can't be Makaim the mitzvah of Avas Hashem or Yiras Hashem because you don't understand this planet or this your place in the universe or in the world. And unless you understand it scientifically, you don't really understand anything, right? So once the science has replaced, displaced, debunked, I think what is necessary is to become. A Mamanidian type of scientist, and not to spend time in the Rambam's mistakes. I think the Rambam, on knowing his personality, as I think I do, uh, from Murnavuchim and other places, he'd probably be the one to write a letter saying, Look, I did the best I could. This is what it seemed to me. Now that I'm, it's 800 years later, and we've discovered there is none of this ether stuff, etc. Now I'm gonna we're gonna try it again. I think the and 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 that is actually I think a hallmark of the Rambam is that despite his firm opinions and extreme self confidence, he reverses himself on a number of places and admits to his reversals. And I think he would have reversed himself yeah. on this. That's anyway. oh he 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 he, he certainly would have. I and mean, you know and and I can get into trouble. You know, because there are people who run around here quoting Rambam. Oh, the Rambam was the greatest scientist of all time. We said, well, not really. You know, he was just exactly the same sort of scientist that he that anybody else was in his day. And if he was alive today, he would be writing you, telling you, please don't bother with my science. My science is re- needs to be revised. Well, 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 but that, well, does, that doesn't mean that the Maimonidean Shita as a Shita is dead. Right. Well, okay? I, and, I, I, obviously not. But the point, though, is, is that the 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 gall to make that Yisodiyat Torah that is the incredible courage of the Rambam to say do you know what a Jew oh, needs to know true. a Jew needs to know this crucial and 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 he was writing a primer he knew that the 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 most the deeper astrologists or astronomers would find this like baby talk but he says I need to write a book for every Jew to have a solid scientific basis and you can't be a religious Jew if you don't have it that I think is the is to make that Yisodeya Torah that is incredible all right on that note we'll we'll chew this over that note We'll chew this. Tiggle has gotten completely cold now, I yes. guess. But yes, yes. Anyway, thanks for uh, thanks for a wonderful conversation. It goes went went in an unexpected direction. Okay. Um, All right. We'll but, see you. Hopefully, we'll see everybody. Hopefully, here on a future episode of some of my best friends are Kabbalists. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 